This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah, did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Today's guest is New York Times bestselling author Catherine May. She is the author of Wintering and also a new book called Enchantment. Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age. In it, she explores our deep disconnection from the world around us and how rediscovering what fills us with wonder and awe can help us feel whole again. Today, we talk about why people generally fear living with uncertainty and why Catherine has come to embrace a practice in fluidity and how in this pursuit, she found a connection to something greater than herself. We talk about the power of surrender, the illusion of control, and what happens when we find the humility to stay open and curious about the world around us. Although Catherine says enchantment may be an antidote to our modern burnout, she explains that the outcome is much more gradual, and she shares the steps we can take to reconcile what is not in our control. Catherine's book pierced me in such a beautiful way, and I can't wait to share this conversation with you. So let's get right to my conversation with Catherine May. Catherine May is the New York Times bestselling author of Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times, which has been translated into 25 languages around the world. The Electricity of Every Living Thing, her memoir of a midlife autism diagnosis, is currently being adapted as an audio drama by Audible. Other titles include novels such as The Whitstable High Tide Swimming Club, and The Best, Most Awful Job, an anthology of essays about motherhood, which she edited. Her journalism and essays have appeared in a range of publications, including The New York Times, The Times of London, Good Housekeeping, and Cosmopolitan. She lives by the sea in Whitstable, England, with her husband, son, two cats, and a dog. 
She loves walking, sea swimming, and pickling slightly unappealing things. <laughs> Welcome to the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Don't ask me about the pickling. <laughs> That's what I wanted to start with. <laughs> if I see a weird vegetable and I don't know what to do with it, I take it home and pickle it. it I just can't stop myself. <laughs> Who taught you how to pickle and what has been the most successful pickling outcome thus far? Well, I come from a long line of picklers. My grandmother was a great pickler and my mother remains an amazing pickler. I can't touch her heights. I think, honestly, if I'm truthful, the best outcomes have usually been the normal ones, like pickled cucumbers. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like this might be a learning process for me. But I have pickled cherries, blackberries ash keys which are the seeds of an ash tree that was not very nice yeah i i will learn one day but it's just i don't know i quite like having these things in jars Mm. (laughs) well i can very much conjure your world of walking around whitstable picking things and (laughs) you and you so clearly sort of bring to life your surroundings in enchantment which is just such a beautiful book and really reads like a novel, not at all like a first person account of something. I mean, it's just so rich and beautiful. And I found myself making notes and highlighting things. And what struck me so much about it was it's the first time that I've read anything about what we kind of collectively went through during the pandemic you put words to this feeling that I had never been able to even necessarily own or find, certainly not articulate about the sort of like suspended, surreal quality that also seemed to be matched with like disconnection with oneself. Yeah. Yeah, it was a very particular frame of mind, I think, yeah. I mean, I guess this is what writers do, right? They put words to things that we can't understand what we're feeling. (laughs) So through the pandemic, you started to sense this deep Mm. exhaustion, disconnection from, you know, I think what Mary Oliver called like the soft animal of her body. Mm, Yeah. So when did you notice that that had happened to you and how did you start to make sense of it? It took a while, actually, because I think at the beginning of the pandemic, I was full of kind of plans and I I thought I could conquer this by organising my way out of it and having board game night with the family over Zoom, you know, and, and I was trying so hard to keep afloat, but it just got harder and harder. And there came a point, I think it was, you know, maybe three or four months in when I realised that the energy had just sapped from me and like in the book I describe it like being an electric toothbrush that's run out of battery you know that horrible moment when you pick it up and it's just like and you (laughs) and that's how I felt like I'd, I'd completely lost my charge and with that came loads of other things I mean it it was losing my excitement about the world around me losing my hope for what was going to happen next and one of the symptoms of that was losing my ability to read. I, I'm a, I mean, as you can probably imagine, I'm a writer, I'm a great reader. I could not pick up a book and read it. Like my attention would just glance off the page whenever I sat down and tried. 
And that came with this sense of grief, like, who am I if I'm not reading? Who am I if I'm not communing with other writers in the way that I love to? And I, there was just a point when I felt like I had disintegrated and time had disintegrated and I didn't know even what I wanted anymore. What do you think that the loss of charge, like, was it incremental? I'm just trying to understand, like, what is the root of that feeling, right? Because I think we all felt that way, yeah. this sort of listless, you know, disembodied thing. Where do you think that stemmed from? I think there were immediate causes, you know, like I, just things like we all lost our personal space during that time. We didn't have any time alone or we were completely alone. Like the two extremes were there. Mm-hmm. And it's it was about living with that uncertainty and fear as well. Like we didn't know what the right thing was to do. And for me, all of the things that I usually did to soothe myself were denied to me. I, you know, I wasn't allowed to go off on a long walk. I wasn't allowed to go and have coffee with friends. But that was the short term. And I think what I came to realise the more I thought about it was that I bounced into pandemic brain on the back of a long decade of more uncertainty and more worry as well mm-hmm. and the fear that I felt during the pandemic seemed to be cumulative on top of the the sense of fear and threat that I was already feeling about the world changing so much and I I realized that that this was it was a, a moment of crisis without a doubt but it wasn't just immediately about the pandemic. I'd gone into the pandemic already exhausted and already drained. And so, uh, you know, the battery just went flat very, very quickly after that. And I, I was I was thinking about how to describe it because, you know, you sort of said, well, writers are good at describing this. I had no words for it. Like it was an empty space for me. And I, I was circling and circling like, what is the quality of that? And in the end, I, I came to this, image of the the glass of tap water that I'd left overnight and you know you take a sip of that water and it tastes absolutely disgusting and you think what has happened to transform this thing that felt so full of life yesterday (laughs) and so delicious to something that's suddenly sour and chemical and devoid of all life and that was what I I wanted to kind of uncover in myself Mm -hmm. and recover so something about the stillness the exposure the isolation Mm, had done to you what it had done to water tap water essentially yeah and I there's something about the lack of spontaneous exchange that I think happened to us during that time as well we couldn't have those kind of meetings where you happen upon people and you have these conversations that you're not expecting like everything in my life was planned and predicted if it was there at all and I began to really miss bumping into someone at the school gates and, and having that quick exchange that you take home and it, it, it just puts some fizz back into you. And it meant that as a creative person, my ability to generate new ideas had just gone completely. It, it, there just wasn't anything new coming in. And so everything was slowly going stale. And, and that was exhausting somehow. Yeah. Also, we're wired for spontaneity, right? We're wired for inputs Mm. and for uncertainties and, you know, our days being full of all kinds of different rhythms and our nervous systems are adjusted to that. And things got very 
samey and very quiet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very quiet. And I'm I'm like naturally quite a reclusive person. You know, I I like life quiet, but even for me, this was so quiet that I suddenly realized how much I liked the company of other people. Yeah. It's interesting. I always assumed that I was an extrovert because of my life mm. and having to be, you know, yeah. in a dog and pony show all the time. And I can't imagine. I <laughs> I recently had done some testing like around Myers-Briggs and I've done it a couple of times now and I test quite heavily as an introvert. Mm. So I think for me on some level, I got to connect with my true self in that sense. Like for part yeah. of the pandemic, I was like, oh wait, this is actually an opportunity mm. for me to really get quiet and internal. But then as the months went on, there was an aspect of me that I felt was lost. Yeah. And I mean, it's almost like we all need a balance, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I want to talk through lots of different aspects of the book, but it's almost like the moral of the story was, and forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but how, you know, the realization that finding that enchantment and knowing that it is there and that sometimes it's a pursuit it's it's work yeah. to right and yeah. but that it is always in there yeah absolutely I, I think that was absolutely the outcome for me was realizing that there was nothing that I wanted that was fixed and that in fact the satisfaction and the pleasure and the stimulation came in dealing with a world that's constantly changing that is unpredictable that's constantly throwing things into my path and that is challenging me to keep creating new understandings of it every time I, I enter into another dialogue with it and that that for me was was definitely where I got to let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners this year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Do you feel like having gone through this journey of exploration and then writing about it? I mean, you know, it was almost like there was this compounding of the anxiety and fear part and then this weird, abstract, like boundaryless piece mm. that led to this kind of abdication of meaning. So do you think if we're looking at this like 
from sort of a Rudolf Steiner way, like, was there a reason, do you think, for as part of our evolution? Did this, like, and so specifically for your evolution, did it end up being, did this period end up being profound for you? Yeah, it did. And and genuinely changing for me in a, in what I think is quite a permanent way. Mm. And that was partly due to that time, but also due to the time after lockdown when I felt kind of freer to do things again. And I had this balancing of that feeling of, of too much slowness, which was that the world then felt too fast. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, isn't life impossible that, that you, you know, you just can't, can't get it right. But there was that sense going back in that I didn't want to return to my old life and that there were some things that had without a doubt soothed me during that time just like you and as uh, you know I'm an introverted person but I'm a I'm a chatty introvert I think mm. but that can be a problem for me because I'm never someone that can be introverted in a room with other people I have to go out there hide that sense of introversion and be big in the room and, and make sure everyone else feels at ease. That's my that's my thing. Like I I cannot see other people feeling uncomfortable. I have to be the one that keeps the conversation going, that that checks in with everyone. Spoken like a true and, codependent. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, you know, like I'm a late diagnosed autistic, and that's how I learned to cope with being autistic out in the world and, and how to mask it. Like it, it's the way that I make everything look okay is by going out and saying hi everyone I'm going to be the most ultra normal competent person in the room and that's like an addiction like I can't I can't come down from that I find it very hard to or I did you know <laughs> because going back into the world after the pandemic I realized how painful that had been I mean I'd, I'd already realized it in my mind but I felt it in my body the the sort of the pain of meeting the speed of the outside world again. Mm. And I had to find a better way to do that. I had to find a way to connect because I'd crave that connection, but without it being harmful, without it feeling violent, actually, and without it missing out on so many of the things that I needed mm -hmm. in the world. Talk to me a little bit about this idea that you landed on about enchantment being the antidote to burnout. Were you writing this the whole time? Did you write this in retrospect afterwards? Like, tell me how you made that connection and what the process was like of writing the book. It was a bit of each, actually. I was trying to write my way through it, but there was a long period when I couldn't make any words come out. And I mean, for me, feeling like my language had disintegrated was like feeling lost in a, in a completely dark room. I didn't know how to process this without writing about it. Mm. And when I sat down to start creating this book, I had to just make hundreds of attempts at it. And they were, every single one of them, really frustratingly imperfect because I didn't fully understand what I was pinning down. But at the same time, I knew I needed to do some things. And that's always helped me to write before. And the book begins with me leaving a note to myself saying, go for a walk, you know, as simple as that. Because I'd I'd lost that rhythm to my day, the, the rhythm that said, okay, we leave the house now. That's, you know, that's the normal thing to do. And that will help you. 
And so I had to almost leave myself a trail of breadcrumbs to just go out and do things, to visit things, to to begin to follow my curiosity again, mm. because that had gone really deep into me, that that sense of intrigue that might lead me out. I had to train myself out of it because mm. it was so horrible to feel curiosity and be locked in. And then it was hard to get it back again. And so I just began to coax my, my curiosity again, really. Mm. And then there was a call and response between doing some things, I'd write about them. I'd think about that in the context of the book. I would not know what I was trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) And it really was the slowest book to write. And I wrote probably three or four books in the process of coming to this one and just rejected so much material because I was trying to find my path. I just have this visual of you sort of wading through this heaviness in the countryside of England taking your walks like but feeling <laughs> this this in, incredible heaviness and and almost sadness I don't know because you, you you can't read books you you've lost the the beauty in language you feel stuck and at what point did you understand that it was your responsibility to cultivate enchantment to pull yourself out of it I think that I think the realisation actually came quite early. Mm. I think as soon as I had began to feel that pull when I went out and did things, you know, early on in the book, I talk about connecting with stone and how important stones have always been to me and how when I hold a stone, I feel like the weight of it roots me. But it also connects me to everything I know about stones. You know, like I, I start to think about the deep age of them and that, and how that sets me in this unfathomably large time scale and how small I feel next to that. And when I contemplate that, how it, it gives me this shortcut into meaning almost. So that helped. Like I, I suddenly thought, I, here is fascination and I have one sitting right by my desk because I always do. But it also connected me to childhood because as a child, I collected like I had a big box of fossils and different minerals, like some quartzes and some amethysts. And I used to love sorting through them and like labeling them and talking to people about them. And I, I suddenly thought about how I allowed myself that fascination and magic as a child. And I allowed myself to go deep into something as static as a stone collection that I was really aware that nobody else around me was interested in and I thought how do I get that back like how do I return to that state where I can go really deep into something and for it just to be about me and it it doesn't matter that I have to communicate it to the outside world it doesn't have to have words behind it it can just be that feeling of pure engagement with an object Mm. and the and the associations that I make and that actually is really sustaining and giving myself that permission to go into my body sense the stones with my hands rather than with my brain and to not have to portray that to the outside world which is the great I think a, a huge burden of being a writer as well as a pleasure that was that was what set me going that was what made me really think this is what I need and I need to find it all the time to keep me going. Yeah. And as you speak about that, it reminds me of a section where you walk up to this sort of 
fake mini Stonehenge, you know, that some, or, you know, that (laughs) you describe like someone has sort of done this collection of rocks to look spiritual. And I think you describe it as air (laughs) sots and, and it's sort of an affront to you, right? Because it's, it's, it's kind of a man-made assembly Mm -hmm. of stones that are supposed to purport meaning. And it starts out being offensive to you on some level. And then. Yeah. Tacky. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I think what's interesting about what you're saying is that there are a couple instances in the book where the power of nature exists, but it's in kind of this harnessed form, right? So whether it's mm. these rocks that people put around or the well that you describe going to with its healing waters, but it's kind of, there's this man-made construct around what it's yeah. supposed to be. So yeah. I just find, I found that really interesting that you're sort of wrestling with the intrinsic qualities of nature and what they're there to teach us or to bring out of us. And then the struggle with the kind of, you know, context that man puts around them. Yeah, I was definitely in a thought process about that at the beginning. And to tell you about the stones a bit, you know, we don't have any local standing stones, but our local authority has erected a stone circle and it's brand new. And I, when I first went to visit it, I just thought, this is weird. Like you could still, there were still bits kind of chipping off the stones where they'd been freshly carved. And I just thought, why would anyone do this? But I went back to them and I spent some time with them. And yes, they were new. And, you know, in wintering, I wrote about visiting Stonehenge and going up and getting really close to those ancient stones and how amazing that was. These stones didn't exude ancientness, but they did show me very good intentions. You know, like in a world where we don't know how to practice anymore, we don't know how to connect. The fact that somebody had thought to try and start a new stone circle isn't such a bad instinct, actually. And already when I visited them again, people had began to inhabit them a bit more you know like somebody clearly marked a recent solstice there and I thought I'm it's me that's being foolish like I'm resisting the meanings that are being offered to me here and I'm waiting for the perfect moment to like land in my lap and instead the invitation is for me to come and be part of embedding these stones in the landscape and in our ritual and in our in our meaning making and actually, what a privilege to be at the beginning of that rather than a thousand years later. Like, how wonderful to start to lay something down. So, yeah, I really, I wrestled with myself on that. And I, I completely changed my mind about that. Yeah, it's a really interesting lesson about acceptance, right? Like, mm. especially you you speak of this divisiveness that's kind of so permeated through the culture and it's like kind of this undercurrent and and then you know you have this acceptance of something that you had againstness toward for example with the stone I'm I'm wrong about a lot of things you know like I I do I think that one of the aspects of ourselves that we all need to learn to accept is our wrongness there is definitely something that every single one of us is wrong about and the question is like which bits are they like how do we find them how do we identify them but I think often we know you know like I think often we're really aware of them and that they're the things that we're pushing hardest against 
Right. And my right. question to myself is like, how do I notice them and how do I stop pushing <laughs> mm. sooner rather than later? Yeah. <laughs> because sometimes we have true blind spots, right? But if, but often if they're not blind spots and we know they're there, they present themselves like in a trigger. Yeah. They come up all the time and they bug you and you feel really furious about them whenever they come up and you can't believe that everybody else thinks this is fine and you know, it's not, <laughs> you know, yeah, we know, we know them quite often. Yeah. Mm. Which also touches on another theme around negative capability. I love that phrase. Tell us what, what is negative capability? It's this idea that Keats uh, brought up in a letter. I think it was like a casual remark, actually. But he said it was the ability to hold a kind of spiritual uncertainty. Shall I find the quote? It's probably better for me to quote Keats rather than to sure. like, make up what he said. He does it so beautifully. And I love the way it's just in this really sort of casual exchange with his brothers. So I, I say that John Keats called negative capability that intuitive mode of thought that allows us to reside in, and this is the quote from him, uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. And that is, is beautiful. And it's actually quite contested space now, isn't it? Because there are a lot of us that are very uncomfortable with being in that state, with being in a state that can't be proven or demonstrated or, or sort of scientifically analysed. And I was definitely one of those people for most of my life. And I still am to an extent. But Keats is talking about this ability to soften into what we don't know and what we don't understand. Yeah. And in fact, to welcome in what we perceive, but we might push back because it seems too mysterious to us. And yeah, negative capability. I think it's a virtue that I'm, I'm seeking more and more. Yes, absolutely. And that it's a virtue to be able to hold in that discomfort and to have it be a source of curiosity and, and, and learning as opposed yeah. to, right. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that, I think what that implies is being able to hold multiple perspectives at once. Actually. Yes. Yes. You know, which we struggle with now. We really, really struggle. Yes. Now more than ever, I feel like even, yeah. you know, people have lost the ability to even hear a dissenting opinion. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely one of the things I was thinking about when I was embarking on the book was, was actually my own, you know, my own inability to hear dissenting opinions and how sensitized I'd become mm -hmm. to anything that disagreed with me and how easy I was beginning to find it to block that voice because <laughs> you know because I was hearing it on social media or to avoid that person rather than to engage with it or to or to just just to be able to gently hold the idea that other people thought differently to me and that that might even be because they had had totally different experiences to me and I yeah, that's definitely part of it, isn't it? That to have this negative capability, we have to allow for people to be different, mm. but also for the way that people experience the world around them to be different. And I, I think it is, it's fundamentally different on a, on a perceptional basis. Mm. And to really 
to really accept that like even as I say that now I find that quite a complicated idea like I feel that landing in my body to to think that people are perceiving things that I don't Mm. and it's not my job to judge that or to scold it or to to police it it's actually my work to hear it and to accept it Mm. and to go back to my perception and ask what that tells me do you have like a big process is there an example that you can conjure as for learning purposes like yeah tell me okay so the big one that I often think about is ghosts I grew up with a grandmother who definitely believed in ghosts you know she she was obsessed with ghost stories and I remember like my next door neighbor would regularly tell us that her mother had come to visit her and sat on the end of her bed at night for a chat, her dead mother. And as I got older, I began to think, well, ghosts don't exist. Straightforwardly, ghosts don't exist. And so those people are wrong. And I found that quite painful because that meant separating myself off from my grandma, who was really into her ghosts, and from a kind of mode of conversation but I also couldn't stop loving ghost stories. And I realised at some point in my life that I was secretly wishing to see a ghost so that I could believe in them too. Like so that I could put aside this, you know, <laughs> this profound belief that they weren't true. And so now to synthesise that, I now think that some people do see ghosts and I don't. And that's actually a bit sad. I'd quite like to to see ghosts or just the nice kind like the nice kind that have a chat with you at the end of your bed not the, not the horrible kind in, in horror movies but I can I can sit comfortably with other people's perception of that and what I'm the least comfortable with is sitting with people who are really sure that no one has ever seen a ghost and that have no feeling or sympathy for the complex ways in which that might be true that's that's negative capability to me that is the ability to sit with multiple views multiple ways of experiencing the world without actually having to have seen that firsthand myself and without having to take that any further than i hear your perception and you hear mine and we'll exchange those perceptions how do you think people get like that like how do people get so right that they can't hear anybody else like what are they defending against now that definitely used to be me so I can probably tell you quite accurately actually (laughs) like I I think when I felt like that I wanted to be accepted into a certain group and I I felt like I had to pick sides you know I felt like I had to be on the rational side and that that made me cleverer and smarter as well that made me better educated and it it fed into my insecurities, actually, as someone who was like in the first generation of the family to go to university. I felt like I had a lot to prove. And in order to prove that I was clever enough to like merit that position, I had to be on the scientific rational side. And that meant kind of violently rejecting other views because I thought I was better than that. And I wanted other people to think I was better than mm-hmm. that. And I, I now look back on that self and think how painful life was for that person who was constantly trying to work out like what the right fact was mm. rather than being able to listen and think about the subtleties and just to be easy with difference, genuine difference. 
the wait is over. That's right. Season 5 of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So, get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all-new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. What happens to your inner life if you, and that permission to explore, if you just, if you're in that binary, right? Of like, this is rational or not rational. You have no permission to explore. Mm. And it's really fine, incidentally, to explore and, and think you still don't believe in ghosts. <laughs> like, that's yes. fine. But at least do the exploration. Mm-hmm. And I like I increasingly just think that what we find when we explore is some things just aren't for us and some things really are, you know, and that's it's a bit like sex, isn't it? You try some stuff, you think sometimes mm, wouldn't bother with that one again. Thanks very much. <laughs> and other times you're like, yep, I'm going to go right back and do that a second time. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Ghosts and sex are the two most important things. Yeah. And the, what the through line there is the lack of judgment and the the listening to one's own, that voice inside Mm. and what does resonate. And we're also individual, like, you know, that's why these, when people make these sweeping generalizations about us, whether it be about what we should eat or shouldn't eat or what we should do, Mm. like we're all so individual, you know, our physiologies are so different and our the way we have been raised and our nurture, our nature, like, so Mm. I would hope that we would start to cultivate more tolerance for this kind of breadth of, of who we are and all of the layers of it. But that takes me right back to thinking with your body instead of thinking with your head as well. And yes, you can't get there. Yeah. We can't get there without, letting that that knowledge letting that wisdom letting that experience distribute through all of us and not just filtering it through the the very kind of questioning synapses that we have in our head it's it's a we have other sites of wisdom and other sites of knowledge and we find that so hard to get i i definitely find that very very hard to access Mm. but i'm trying and that's like the best i can do really you wrote something that I wrote down, which is I need to soften, to let go of my tight empirical boundaries, to find a greater fluidity in my being, which is just what you're talking about. And I just found it so, you know, I'm so clenched all the time. (laughs) And, And those tight empirical boundaries that are self-imposed, culturally imposed, whatever, imposed by our teams, but really by ourselves, you know, it feels scary to put those down sometimes. Like I've, I've done this thing recently where on weekends, I really try not to work, even if I'm very behind, because I've noticed that this panic starts to happen if I don't have something to do. And I need to like delve deeper into that because it doesn't feel healthy. No, no. And nobody's going to ever give you permission to do that. 
are they? Because actually we're all in this habit of overwork and the most frightening thing we can ever say about ourselves now is that we're not busy. If someone says, how are you? You say, oh yeah, busy. Like that's the performance that I we know. have to perform. But I, you see, I've got a lot of practice about that. If someone says, how are you? I say, well, I've got nothing much on at the moment. It's lovely. <laughs> Even if it's not true. Because I just, we need to train ourselves to like stop being in a rush. Like our value does not lie in us being busy. And I know that's a terrible thing to say to an actor. <laughs> I, I'm barely an actor anymore. So it's okay. Otherwise. <laughs> yeah, but that fluidity that you talk about, it really feels like you have a practice around it, right? Like you just mentioned, oh, I have a thing now when someone asks me. So will you tell me a little bit about that practice of fluidity and maintaining the connection to your body? Yeah, actually, it's quite long standing for me because when I first started to meditate, I was I used to get this repeated image that came to me while I was meditating that I was standing beside the river and it was like this really gushing river that flowed over loads of rocks. But I'd, I'd spend ages like in my head looking at this river thinking, what am I supposed to do with this river? I'm being given this river to interact with. What, what am I supposed to do? And I, I used to like think I'm gonna go and swim in it. I love swimming. So I'd climb into this river and then in my head, I'd go bump, bump, bump over the rocks and like wake up feeling bruised. And I was like, no, no, that's, that's not why. <laughs> What what meditation it, practice is this? It just it just used to kind of arise. Like I was, only, <laughs> I was only practicing TM, but I would get this thing over and over again. And then I suddenly realized one day, like, ah, oh, I'm supposed to merge with the river. Like I'm supposed to become the river. I'm not supposed to get into the damn river. I've got to be the river. And ever since then, I've been trying to be the river. <laughs> you know, I've been trying to flow over the rocks and, and be energized by them rather than bruised by them. And so how that translates into everyday life for me is that I, whenever I hit a bump, I always ask how I need to change. I don't ask how the other person needs to change. I mean, I do ask that, but I try and always think about how I can flow into this much better. And that does mean that I set myself little challenges where, where I can identify where I'm consistently not getting this right. Like I'm consistently doing harm. When I, when I tell people I'm busy and I'm not busy, I'm actually doing harm because I'm influencing both of our behavior when we go back into the world and I'm reinforcing this view that we have to both be busy all the time. So how can I diminish that little harm that I do regularly and without even thinking? Well, I can do it by finding the humility to say, I'm not that busy at the moment it's fine and I and I can do that to do that I have to go through that little twinge in my stomach that goes oh god they don't think I'm very important or special and it's tiny but that's my work for that day is like I I've got to live with that feeling of maybe not being that important and special maybe you know maybe I'm not maybe that's completely fine Mm. and so yeah that's all for me part of that being the river which will be a life's work and I will probably never get it quite right but I'm I'm getting better at it every day so the being the river is just sort of radical acceptance of self of flow not even that big it's just flow it's just letting 
life take you where life is trying to take you mm. and not pushing hard against it, not resisting it, not trying to control it, just getting in and being part of the flow. Because it, the world doesn't bend to my will, no matter how hard I try, and I just exhaust myself doing it. So wow. I need to learn to be taken. And what is the outcome of that when you do that successfully? How do you feel? What's the impact? <laughs> I think it's more gradual like you wouldn't see it like I don't kind of achieve it in one moment but I I've noticed over the years that I find change easier than other people and I find situations that are out of my control easier to deal with because I know they're out of my control and that's because I work on knowing that everything is out of my control I can do a lot of small things you know I can make choices within those situations but this world is much bigger than I am. Mm -hmm. And I have, I'm quite a willful person, but it is bigger than my force of will. And I really find that horrible, but also kind of wonderful. Once you truly accept that change is happening without you all the time. Mm. And release into that. And so how do you reconcile then the things that you do have look at me just trying to get control in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah um, i know here we go uh, <laughs> this work how do i make this work how do right. i do it quickly <laughs> what's the shortcut <laughs> right so then within that framework like the things that we do have control over like interact interpersonal interactions or how we communicate or the words that we choose like how does that fold into the bigger picture of flow I get to choose my response mm. I don't get to choose what happens I get to choose my response and so you know when something disastrous happens and disasters happen to us all the time but that's what wintering's all about I I can't stop disaster from happening mm -hmm. you know and even if I held everything back I'm gonna die one day I have a little memento mori all over my house to remind myself of that. I find that really healthy. So that's part of your practice as well. I was a teenage goth, yeah. And I've, <laughs> I've not abandoned the skulls yet. Like, never take the skulls away from me. Um, <laughs> but what I can control is how I respond to it. Mm -hmm. And I can take the time and space to respond carefully in a way that doesn't do any further harm, rather than to respond as I always used to which was spontaneously and angrily and you know, mm -hmm. and and you know expressing my hurt really quickly and I yeah I just try and take the space to respond in a more considered way right. to the things that I can't control and then what about where you're actively participating or creating something right how does that make you not just be like okay forget it I'm just gonna go you know what I mean with the flow as opposed to like the piece where you're creating a book or maybe you are creating a <laughs> a, a strategy yeah. around parenting and you're injecting something mm -hmm. into the field say so in terms of creating a book I don't feel very in control of that at all. Like I'm wondering I if that feel, was true. Yeah, I'm very yeah. sort of Blakean in that sense. Like I feel like I'm channeling it. Like I don't know where I'm channeling it from, but I it's never felt in my control. And I, I, this is why I'm always really uncomfortable delivering writing workshops because I'm like, 
I don't know, like I don't know where it comes from. I don't know where you get ideas from. But what I can do is show up in ways that notice the ideas when they come. And I can record the ideas when they come. And I can spend time with them and consider them and, and you know, make space in my life for the kind of things that foster ideas. In terms of parenting, I, I honestly, I fought so hard against being a parent when I was first a parent. I had a very wanted baby, but I found it so painful entering this world of like everybody knew how to do it and they were all saying different things. And I was like, okay, I've got to choose the right, the right one. <laughs> I've, got to, I've got to somehow discern this, this one right method and, and execute it. And I mean, my son's 10 now. As the years gone on, I've learned to soften and listen and listen to him and to me, actually. I mean, that's the, that was the problem I think I had with a lot of the strategies that I was reading in books when he was a baby, which was like, you are irrelevant. This is the right thing to do to make your baby okay. And if you don't do it, you're going to harm them. I found that unbearable and I still do. Yeah. But I can listen to him and I can show him my authentic feelings and I can teach him to listen back. And I, since I've surrendered a bit more and stopped trying to have the answers, I've done much better at it. Mm. I'm a much, you know, I'm a much nicer parent than I used to be. My friends sometimes remind me, they say, Catherine, do you remember the spreadsheet? <laughs> I had a spreadsheet when he was a baby and it recorded like every sleep duration. <laughs> nappies like the whole, the whole thing i am i'm not the same person that made that spreadsheet <laughs> i'm very that's, proud to tell you <laughs> that's amazing because i guess you know we we have this tendency to put structure and organization around things as a way of staving off death or lack of control or whatever you want to call it right it's that illusion it was well-intentioned. Like I wanted to be really good at it. I wanted to make him okay. And I wanted to get some sleep, which took a while. But I, and, and you know, the most terrible thing as I'm saying this, I bet you I could publish that spreadsheet as a, as a book and, and add some chapters around it and sell 200,000 copies because we're all so desperate to have that control and to make it okay. And we lack we lack inherited wisdom, you know, like we're no longer parenting with our mother and our sisters and this extended group of women around us as we go through that most like incredibly traumatic revolutionary period in our life. There's no one there saying, I'll hold the baby for a while for you while you have a nap. Instead, we have a book saying, OK, you wake up at seven, baby wakes up at 7.15, you feed them this. <laughs> And that's what we have in place of wisdom. We have control and it always breaks down. Something breaks every time. And that's just evidence of how far away we've gotten from our innate instinct, mm. you know, which I think yeah. really is like that space, how you describe enchantment and what is the word? Hierophany? Hier Hierophany. Hierophany. Yeah. Hierophany. Yeah where it's sort of you describe it's how god reveals itself or something like that right that mm. feeling of transcendence and 
deep beauty yeah. and, and meaning like we, we, it seems to me that your spreadsheet around your baby is like the exact opposite <laughs> of that, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's profoundly disenchanted, isn't it? Because what it, what the spreadsheet tells you is that your baby isn't a kind of beautiful, magical being. They are something to be scheduled and to be like picked apart like they're an engine. Mm. And yeah, I fell headfirst into that because I was tired I yeah. was really tired and I I felt like I couldn't go on without the spreadsheet and mm. now I think we've not solved the you know we've not solved the world enough to get rid of the spreadsheet forever but we that's the, that's the problem we have to figure out like how can we help the next generation of people not to need or not to feel like they need the spreadsheet and instead yeah. to feel like that phase in their life is honored and protected and supported enough so that they can have that beautiful engagement with their with this divine thing like a baby is a divine thing even though they make a lot of noise on this and how do we you know connect with the energy of the stones and the river and <laughs> you know how do we do that how do we move away from this orientation around spreadsheets to the rocks like how do you do that every day you do it bit by bit you know you you don't believe that any one thing will get you there but what will is repeated return keeping coming back to those stones to the river to the sea to looking at the moon and keep following your instinct and i just think for loads of people there will be no instinct, first of all. You know, they'll look at the moon and they'll feel nothing because they're so flat. And they'll mm. hold a stone and they'll think, I'm just holding a rock. Please don't tell me to hold a rock. I just want to put the rock down. And that's really fine. But over time, all of us will feel a pull towards something. Just a tiny pull and it will be so imperceptible. And you have to put your attention on it. You have to go looking for what that pull is for you and then you follow it and you let yourself follow it again and again and it just grows stronger every day and so every time you pick up that stone or stand by the river or look at a leaf <laughs> or stand in the rain it will get that little bit more powerful it's like building a muscle yeah. and soon you'll have a relationship it will feel reciprocal it won't just be you looking at a rock you'll feel the pull of the rock on you and you'll feel like you're giving the rock something back with your attention. And mm. that, and that, then the circle is complete. It's mm. a circuit. Mm. It's really amazing to think of it in that way. There's sort of a direct correlation between, or an inverse correlation probably between not having that feeling at all when you're in nature and how shut off you are from yourself yeah and not feeling I mean I I didn't feel like nature was mine to explore for the longest time I felt like it was other people's expertise and I couldn't do it alone and I couldn't develop my own knowledge or relationship with it and I didn't I didn't know enough and I didn't have a lineage in it and I've been working on developing that lineage and I and I do that by you know when I see a flower I don't know the name of I go and look it up 
And that's easier than ever because I can now point my mobile phone, phone it'll tell me, which you know, 10 years ago, I've had to have opened a book and gone through like, oh, here are the purple flowers. Okay, I think it's this one. But, you know, we want everything to be either with us or not there at all. And I think the whole of enchantment is about the, the beginner's mind, is about the process of learning afresh and being in the in flow with accumulating knowledge and not knowing like knowing is such a boring full stop <laughs> being certain is like the most boring state i can imagine in mm. re-entering the stage of unlearning everything you know and relearning it i think is mm. is the most interesting way i can imagine to go through this life mm. Yeah, you reminded me that I read in the New York Times, I think it was a few weeks ago, there was a, a piece on the importance of awe, which yes. I think is very aligned with, I mean, this is just right, it's just a different word, but I think it's exactly what you're... It's a, a bachelor, isn't it? I read loads of his papers when I was researching Enchantment, so it's quite funny to me that he's just had a book out just as, as Enchantment's come out. Like, I feel like we, he doesn't know that we grew up together, but I feel like we did. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you about your crazy swimming experiences and I'm surprised you're not into cold water swimming. This feels very you. Like have you not have you not given it a go? I'm trying to get into cold water swimming. <laughs> you know, my son and his dad every weekend they go in the Pacific Ocean, which is incredibly cold, especially right, right now. I mean, it's always mm. cold, but right now I think it's in the 40s. And they go, and my husband goes in the cold plunge every day and everybody's sort of expounding on the, the (laughs) benefits of cold water. And I, you know, and, and reading your book as well, like I, I really want to try this because it seems to be this wellspring of connection and invigoration and like a direct line to this enchantment that the men who go in cold water, they don't quite have the language (laughs) around it that you do. I'll have you know. No, it's really different. And it, but actually, again, like I think it's about finding your medium for it because I don't enjoy cold showers or cold plunges at all. Like I just find them brutal and uncomfortable. And I'm just like, what's this giving me other than some like mechanical logical stuff that I've I've got to tell myself it's doing for me the cold sea is a spiritual space no doubt at all it it changes my consciousness as soon as I get into it yes and my best friend initiation right of the cold is important yeah sorry oh sorry (laughs) my best friend Mary always says when I sort of have trepidation about going in the sea, she's like, let's get in. It's going to rearrange our molecules. <laughs> it does. It really does. It gives you, it releases the same chemicals that taking ecstasy releases. And after a couple of minutes, you are high as a kite. It's like chatter, 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 chatter. Can't stop talking. I'm in love with everybody. I rarely feel like that. I don't think I'd get that in a nightclub ever, but I can get that in a freezing cold <laughs> sea. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, you've given me a <laughs> renewed passion around this pursuit. It's the right time of year to start. That's all I'm saying. I'm just putting it out there for you. Okay, <laughs> my last question for you, and you can tell me to fuck off, but... Never. Your marriage is this interesting, like there's little sort of, breadcrumbs of marriage throughout the book (laughs) and given your perspective and your you know 
I don't want to use the word control over your reactions because there's that word control, but you're, you know, mm-hmm. it, for someone like me, anyway, your mastery over your decisions around your responses, et cetera. Like how was the rest of the marriage through not only the <laughs> pandemic, but how, what does, yeah. what does being in that close, intimate relationship, mm-hmm. what do you learn from that over a sustained period of time? Yeah. I think it's really important to say, like, I got married really young. I've been married since I was 21 and I started dating my husband when I was 18. So it's a, it's a really long relationship. And we've both been through a lot of change together. I mean, a lot, a lot of change together. And I have to say that time during the pandemic is the most we've ever argued. I mean, it became bitter because it really felt like, we were fighting for scarce resources. It, mm. it literally felt like a zero sum game that either he got to work or I got to work and either he got some personal space or I got some personal space. And we were both sharing the same desk, which really didn't help that wow. level of disputes. And yeah, I, it's, it's dissipated since then, but it, it was interesting to me how two people that love each other deeply and have got no doubts about spending the rest of their lives together could become so embittered with each other so quickly in adverse circumstances. And I, yeah, I, it was, it was terrible. Honestly, I think it's the closest I've ever been to to calling it a day. And I can say that now because I absolutely don't feel like that a couple of years on. So what was the lesson there for you? Do you think we get lessons that simply? (laughs) The lesson was that we both need our own space. Like we're both very introverted people who love to bury deep into our obsessions. Like my husband's got the most incredible music collection and he DJs and he needs to spend time with that music. Like it's not, it's not a passing interest. He needs time with that. And I need church-like silence in order to function (laughs) and those two things really don't go together but I think like what I've what I've learned during that time but also during the course of a very long relationship is that you have to let each other make the space they need and that's going to be different for everyone like there's no rules here and when we had that taken away from us everything crumbled really quickly Mm. because we weren't we weren't being allowed to follow the thing that we needed. And in fact, that that is so much about enchantment because music for him is all about enchantment. Like he, he, he perceives these layers in the music he collects that I can't hear, that I, and, and that I can't ever expect to connect with. And he needs that. And he had that taken from him by the pandemic. And I, I'm very glad that we've been able to forgive each other for, for some of the things that were said during that time. Let's just, <laughs> let's just put it that way. <laughs> I'm happy to hug him again now, you know. <laughs> That's great. Well, Catherine, honestly, I can't remember the last time I read a book and went back and reread and, you know, it just, it just pierced me in such a beautiful way and so thank you that means the world thank you so much i think you've got something very powerful on your hands here thanks for tuning in to my chat with Catherine may her new book enchantment awakening wonder in an anxious age is out now 
It's very beautiful and one I will turn to again and again. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. 